you know, what a beautiful message it is here in this chapter in, here in 1 Peter here. You know, when Peter is saying that you are a chosen people, Peter is not talking to Asians. He's not talking to Mongs. He's not talking to Anglos. He's not talking to Hispanics. He's not talking to African Americans. He's talking to all of us. But we are one people. That's the message that Peter is trying to send us here, is that we are all one under God. I'm not very comfortable talking about other ethnic groups, but let me talk about the Hmong ethnic group. And sometimes within our community, we have some. We have some that believe that the American people here in the United States owe us something. There are some that believe that because of the war. Some of them, they believe that, you know, we, we live in our own country, we mind our own business. The Americans came, started a war, you know, thousands of our people died. And so the Americans owe us something. But I always remind them that yes, we've contributed a lot to the people of the United States, but who flew us out of Laos. When our own government at that time in 1975, in May of 1975, when our own government declared for our, us to be wiped out, declared for the genocide of the Hmong people in Laos, who flew us out of Laos? Three American pilots, that was it. No one else would, was willing to do it. But three American pilots, one CIA agent and two American pilots, flew us out of Laos and, and into safety. Even at that time, even when the United States government was no longer there to help protect us, three Americans, three Anglo-Americans, they risked their life to flew us out of Laos and, and into safety. And so as much as we've contributed to the United States, the United States has also contributed to us. So the only thing that we really owe each other is love. That's it. It's love. Nothing else. There is nothing else. Because we have contributed to each other. We have been brothers and sisters fighting side by side for so many years, for a long time. And so we shouldn't be, you know, saying that these people owe us this or that and all these things, but we should just realize that the only thing the Bible says that teaches us is that the only thing that we're in debt to each other is always love. That's what we need to do, is that we need to continue to love one another. One of the things, one of the great things is that here in the United States that we're able to give, give recognition to other ethnic groups for their contributions to us. Many different countries, we don't have that. Even in our own country, in, in Laos, you know, a lot of times we're not even accepted in our own country in Laos. Our own government doesn't even accept us in there. But yet here in the United States, we have this, we live in a country full of grace and we're willing to give recognition to different ethnic groups. And, and like I was telling the Hmongs this morning that, you know, as, as the United States give, contribution, uh, give recognition to us as Asians, we also need to give recognition to them for, for what they have done for us, for what they have done, what they have contributed to our culture. Our culture just 50 years ago, we don't even read. We didn't even have a language. It was American missionaries and French missionaries that helped develop a written language for the monks. And so many monks today, many of the elderly monks in our church, they don't even read. Now sometimes, I know sometimes we might think, you know, why can't they just learn English? But many of them don't even read. Because the Hmong language, you know, it was lost a long time ago. 
you know, war and war with the Chinese for a long time, all the Hmong literature, it was Hmong language been wiped out. So for hundreds of years, they, they didn't have a written language they, until about 50 years ago when the Christian Missionary Alliance and, and the Catholics came and they helped develop this written Hmong language for us. And so even though we're thinking about, you know, what we've contributed we all, to other societies in, in the United States at the same time, we also need to recognize how much they have contributed to us. And know, and know that what we need to do as we move forward, what we need to do is we need to continue to love one another and walk together as brothers and sisters. So May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Month. Yeah, this consists of people with origins in the Far East, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Islands. An interesting facts about Asians. I was watching, I was watching, I like to watch uh, some YouTube, you know, some YouTube humor and comedy show before I go to sleep every night. I just kind of enjoy that, just laughing myself to sleep every night. And so I was watching this, uh, this, this stand-up comedian telling a joke. He's an Anglo guy, and he's talking about how he never knew, he never knew that Asians didn't understand each other, right? He never, th he never knew that Asians uh, spoke different languages. He thought Chinese and Japanese and everybody spoke the same language. And, um, you know, which, which, you know, which I think, I, you know, which is fine with me. But, you know, one of the things that we, we look at, when we look at Asians, we see that Asians are the most, there are more Asians in the world than any, any other group. There's 4.46 billion Asians in the world. And, you, you know, we have 7 point, about 7.5 billion people. And out of that 7.5 billion people, there's 4.46 billion Asians. And yet they speak 2,300 different languages. I didn't know that, too. I didn't know that, too. 2,300 different languages. So that explains why we fight a lot, right? That explains why Asians fight a lot. We speak 2,300 different Asian languages. And the most spoken language, the most spoken Asian language is Chinese. They have a population of 1.4 billion people. You know, I was, you know, when we think about this, I, when I think about this number, 1.4 billion people, wow, that's pretty crazy. Here in the United States, we have 300 million people. It's, it feels very crowded already. Imagine having 1.4 billion people. That's like five times more than here in the United States. And so they have 1.4 billion people in China with all these different Chinese dialects. And some of the major dialects that they have is, is the Wu dialect, the Min dialect, and the Yu dialect, which we, which we Westerners call, call Cantonese. And the major, the, the major language that they speak, the major dialect that they speak is Mandarin. Mandarin is the most spoken dialect of the Chinese language, and it is also the, <coughs> the official language of China. And then number two, the, the second most spoken Asian language in the world is Hindi, from India, Hindi, spoken by 550 million people in India. It is the fourth most spoken language in the world behind Spanish, Mandarin, and English. And then there is also English. Asians speak, speak English. 300 million Asians speak English. And I didn't know this, I didn't know this, but 260 million Asians speak Russian. 260 million Asians speak Russian. And then Indonesian is spoken by 240 million people. So these are the languages, that are the Asian languages that are most spoken in the world. And there's other Asian languages such as Japanese, spoken by 120 million people. 
Filipino, spoken by 90 million people, Korean and Vietnamese, spoken by 80 million people each, and then the, the Hmong language, spoken by about four to five million people, and here in the United States, spoken by 300,000 Hmong people here in the United States, which that is you know, the population that we have here in the United States. It's always between 250,000 and 300,000 Hmong people here in the United States. And in the Hmong, in the Hmong language, there's two different dialects, two, two, uh, you know, two, two of the major dialects in the Hmong language is the Jua dialect and the Dal dialect. So uh, my wife, she speaks the Jua dialect, and I speak the Dal dialect. So we're actually both Hmongs, but we speak different dialects. Um, most of the people in your church here, they speak the Jua dialect. Yes, we can understand. We, we, you know, in the past, it's a little bit harder, but here in the United States, we've been living together for so long that we understand each other you know, pretty good now. And so something like, for example, if we were to say go, my dialect, I would say moo, kind of like a cow, moo, right? Go. But in my wife's dialect, of the Jua dialect, she'll say mong, mong. So the difference, mu is what I would say, and she'll say mong. Clothes, clothes, I would say konyal. In her dialect, she would say koklor, which is kind of hard for me to say. Okay, it's kind of hard for me to pronounce her, her dialect too because I'm not used, as, as used to her dialect, but she would say koklor, and I'll say konyal. And so the different languages, different, I mean, different dialects, you know, same language. Like I said, in the past, in our old country, we don't even... There's a lot of discrimination in the old country, and so we didn't even live among each other. Okay, so we, we live separate, you know, we live in separate villages, and, and the, the Jordan, you know, those who spoke the Jordan uh, language never associate with those who speak the Dao language, the, those who speak the Dao dialect never really associate with those who speak the Jordan dialect. But here in the United States, we've been able to come together and live together as a community, especially in the church. In the church, the, the ones that that um, came to Christianity first were the ones that spoke the Jua dialect. And so the majority of Hmong Christians are the ones that speak the Jua dialect. The Dao the dialect, we are more into politics. We are more pol political leaders. And so that's why General Vang Pao and you know, most of our um, military leaders, are, they, they speak the Dao dialect because they're more into politics. And, and community and things like that, but while well, the Jewel, the they're more into religion and, and spiritual stuff. So that's why the Christian community and the Hmongs mostly have the Jewel dialect. And we, we, we see our Hmong hymnals, hymnals, it's all written in the Jewel dialect. And so there's different dialects. And here in our United Methodist Church, um, we're organized, the Asian ministry is organized under what's called the National Federation of Asian American United Methodist um, so that's the group that we all do ministry with. And within this group, which is a recognized UMC ethnic caucus, it consists of 10 sub-ethnic groups. It consists of the Cambodians, the Chinese, the Filipino, the Formosan, the Hmong, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Laotian, other Southeast Asian groups, and the Vietnamese. Okay, so these are the, the sub-committees within our national um, ministry of, you know, for Asian Americans here in our United Methodist Church. And all the, all the subcommittees, all the sub-caucuses, ethnic caucuses, are directly linked to them. And so every year we have to pay a fee to them to stay as members with them, okay? And that fee is like something like $50 to $100 or something like that to really support that ministry. 
And so uh, the, with the Hmong Caucus, we have the Hmong National Caucus. The Hmong National Caucus, which is chaired by Reverend Juka uh, Yang, who is also a district superintendent in um, Wisconsin. Okay? And then we have the Wisconsin chair. The Wisconsin Caucus, which is chaired by Reverend Mao Hur. And then we have the Cal Nevada Hmong Caucus, which is chaired by myself. So I'm the chair of that. I've been doing that for about two and a half years now. And as we look at our growth here in the United Methodist Church, of course, if we see, if we look at the overall growth of our United Methodist Church, we have been losing members. We've been losing members. If we look at the if we look at our Anglo community demographic, we see that in the last 20 years, we've lost as many as 2 million members. Okay, 2 million members here in the United Methodist Church. But if we break this down, if we break this down to look at our Asian membership within our United Methodist Church, it's growing, yes, it's growing. And so uh, in 1996, it was at 45,000, and today it's about 100,000, okay? In 2016, the last report, official report in 2016 was 93,211. And so today, you know, they're averaging, saying that it might maybe around somewhere, that, that ballpark of 100,000 Asians in the United Methodist Church. Right. right. Well, yeah, well, th th these stats are just for the United States. Yeah, this is not about, not, not the Central Conference. We're not, we're not talking about the Central Conference, but just the membership here in the United States. Overseas, they're growing dramatically, much more than this, okay, much more than what the stats that we're talking about here. And so, uh, like I said, while the overall ministry, while the overall membership of the United Methodist Church is, is dying, especially here in our, our Western jurisdiction, we're losing about 9% every year in our membership. And so we are the largest, we are, we are the ones, in the, here in the Western jurisdiction, we are the ones that's dying the quickest, about 8 to 9% per year. But even at that rate, we see that in our Asian, uh, in the Asian uh, membership here in the United States, we are, they've actually doubled in the last 20 years. So that's a place that we can um, pray for, for it to continue to grow. Here in the, our Cal Nevada conference, we also have the Committee on Ethnic Ministry and Outreach. And this was the team that was going to put this picnic together a couple years ago in San Francisco, but never came through with it, right? They're supposed to bust us to go over there, but they never did. But, um, so they are the Committee on Ethnic Ministry and Outreach. And within this Committee of Ethnic Ministry and Outreach, we have the subcommittees, which are African-American, the Filipinos, the Hispanic Latinos, uh, the Hmongs, the Native Americans, and the Pacific Islanders, uh, all working under the, the ethnic of uh, Committee on Ethnic Ministry and Outreach. And this is pretty much to try to reach out to these different ethnic groups to bring the gospel to them and to help them grow their churches, help them do ministry within the churches. Now, who are the Hmongs? Well, I've talked about this before with us, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go through it real quick. The Hmongs originated out of southern China about 5,000 years ago under a man by the name of Qi Yu. Yu, the name Yu is Chinese for Yang. So his name, so, uh, his name was Qi Yu, and, uh, but due to years of war with Chinese, the Hmongs, uh, for the last two, three hundred years, have scattered throughout Southeast Asia. Okay, they're, they're scattered uh, throughout Southeast Asia in Vietnam and Laos, and also in Thailand. And so my family, my family that came from China, we've also split up, because part of my, my, my great-grandfather, he came with his brothers, and uh, one of his brothers went to Vietnam. And his family is in Vietnam, and then my great-grandfather, he, he came to Laos. 
And so um, the families, you know, as they, they're fleeing war and persecution in, in China, they, once they got to the border, they split up, each going their own direction. And the whole reason for that was because they just wanted to go, they wanted to split up to go and find the best place for everybody to live. But once they split up, they just not, never found each other again. They're never able to communicate back with each other again. And so a lot of the families split up that way. Uh, with the Hmong resettlements here in the, here in the United States, it started after the Vietnam War. Um, the first wave, the first wave was from 1975 to 1978 under the 1975 Indochina Migration and Refugee Act. And so in December of 1975 was the very first Hmong family resettlement here in the United States. By 1978, there's 34,466 Hmong had resettled in the United States. Mainly, these are, these are people who were mainly directly associated with, uh, with the U.S. Secret Army at that time. Okay, those who fought on behalf of the United States, they were part of that U.S. Secret Army that fought on the Ho Chi Minh Trail to rescue American pilots. So uh, 34,000 of them were settled here in the United States um, by 1978. And then the, then the second wave was in 1980 to 1990. And under the Refugee Act of 1980, it also allowed more families who directly fought uh, for the U.S. Secret Army to continue to come to the United States. From there, they have the third wave, the third wave when uh, all the refugee camps in Thailand were starting to close up, okay, because we, we came to Thailand, we, we stayed in refugee camps. I was born in a refugee camp, and so, um, you know, when refugee camps started to close up, they were either going to send these people back to Laos where the government was going to persecute them, or they were going to come to the United States. And so the American, uh, so the United States government allowed them to come to the United States, and this was between 19, uh, 1992 to 1995. And then the final wave was in 2004 to, to uh, 2006, when another 15,000 Hmong families who were, they had to be you know, directly fighting for the U.S. Uh, secret army. Another 15,000 people, um, 15,000 Hmong people came to the United States, and that was the final wave in 2004 to 2006. And the structure of the Hmong culture is pretty much based upon clanship. And so we've, you've been doing ministry with the Hmong community for the last 20, 30 years. You probably know that we only have 18 last names. You guys know that already, right? We only have 18 last names. You guys never knew that? Okay. Yeah, there's only 18 last names in the Hmong, all the Hmong people. There's only 18 last names. Okay. And so um, everybody, so the structure of the Hmong community is that it works within that structure that clan structure. So the clan, the clans are always led by an elderly male, okay, an elderly male and who, who is in charge of selling all the disputes and, you know, troubles and whatever that goes on within that clan. That, that elderly male is the one that's responsible for it. And of course, he has other people to assist him with that too, but he's, you know, the elder, elderly male is the one that's um, in charge of that. It's, it's usually the oldest, it's usually the oldest person of the clan or the oldest person of that family. Yeah, so like for example, in my family, it's, in my family, it's my older cousin, my oldest cousin, he's the leader of the clan. So whatever issues that happens in the clan, then they bring it to him, which is a good thing because they, they'll never bother us about it. They'll never bother me about it. So there's a lot, and there's a lot of things that goes on. You know, there's a lot of things that goes on. But if he passed away, then the next person in line will pretty much you know, take over all the responsibilities. So that's kind of how the Hmong culture works. And of course, we have those 18 clans, and within those clans, there's also all these sub-clans and things like that. Like, for example, Pastor Chakoy and I, we belong to the same clan. 
We both have the Yang last name. But we're not blood related, so we have subclans within that, 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 um, within that clan structure. Okay? And so uh, we try, when we, if we have issues, we'll try to settle it within our subclan first. If we can't settle it within our Yang subclans, then we'll go to the, the, to the big guy, right? The guy that's in charge of the entire clan to settle the disputes. And so that's usually how, that's usually how um, the Hmong is structured socially. And so you cannot marry within your clan. So, if, so even, if you're not, if, even if you're not blood related, you cannot marry, I cannot marry another person, another Hmong person with a Yang last name. Yeah, so we, can, so we can't marry within our own clan. So we have to marry someone else from outside of the clan. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're all yangs. So if, if, you have, if you have a youth group that's all yangs, then yeah, they can't date each other. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, so. And so that's the, that's the structure of the, um, of the Hmong uh, community. And, and the Hmong Christi Christianity came to the Hmongs in 1949 through the Christian Missionary Alliance, through uh, the missionary Ted and Ruth Adrianoff, and by uh, a first-year Bible student by the name of Nai King in St. Kuang, Laos in 1949. The first Hmong Christian, his name was Boya Tao. And the majority of Hmong Christians, one of the things that we have to understand when we work with the Hmong Hmong ministry within the United Methodist Church is that the majority of that Hmong Christianity is always influenced by the CMA, no matter what denomination they belong to, because that's that's how the how Hmong Christianity came to um, came to the Hmong people, and so it came through the CMA, and so a lot of things that they do is they 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 do a lot of things similar to the CMA, and so uh, that's one of the things we have to understand. Um, Hmong ministry in the United Methodist Church has been going on for 38 years. I put 35 years here in our Buddhism, but it's actually 38 years that the Hmongs have been a part of the United Methodist Church. It started in 1981 in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, with a pastor by the name of Reverend Jonah Su Zong. And what happened was when the Hmongs were coming to the United States is that they, some of them were being sponsored by the, the United Methodist Church. And so when they came to the United States, UMCOR was also helping them with the transition into the, this new culture. And so at the same time, um, a church by the name of the Wesley United Methodist Church, it was located on, on Willock Parkway in St. Paul, Minnesota. They, start be, they began teaching an ESL class to all the new monks that were coming to the United States. And because of that, because of that, that's how the monks got involved into the United Methodist Church. And... Um, in March of 1981, they started the Hmong Community United Methodist Church in St. Paul. Like I said, Reverend Jonas Suzong, who was also a war hero for the Hmongs. He, he was a Hmong, he was a colonel in the U.S. Secret Army, and at the same time, he was a social worker. At that time, he was working as a social worker, and um, he also had some prior biblical training before he went into the army, you know, in Laos. And so, uh, because of that, he was the first pastor, that first Hmong pastor that was appointed in the United Methodist Church, and he, uh, he started that church with 37 people in March of 1981, and by, by July, a few months later, by July, the congregation grew from 37 people to 160 people, and so it was then at that time that they officially chartered the church, and it became the very first Hmong uh, United Methodist Church in the world, and then in 2012, in 2012, this church, they changed their name to Wheelock. 
United Methodist Church in honor of this church that was located at Willow Parkway. And so they are in St. Paul. Other Hmong churches that have been planted uh, since then is the New Hope Hmong United Methodist Church in Milwaukee, planted in 1996. The New Faith Hmong Ministry in 2003 in Green Bay. The Highland United Methodist Church in Rothschild, Wisconsin um, in 2007. Sherman Avenue United Methodist Church in 2008 in Madison. Agape UMC 2011 in New Berlin, Wisconsin. New Life Hmong Ministry 2015 in Wausau, Wisconsin. Resurrection Ministry 2015 in Wausau, Wisconsin. The first Hmong United Methodist Church in the 1990s uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then with the Hmong Ministries, we, for the very first United Methodist Church Hmong missionaries to Laos was sent out in 2001. Was sent out in 2001. And that was Reverend uh, Jutsu Vang and his wife. They were from St. Paul. Like I said, they became the very first United Methodist Church Hmong missionaries sent to Laos. And they worked there for about 11 years. And Reverend Chutsu, he's been here at our church too. But they worked, they worked there for 11 years until he, got, he became ill. And so he, you know, he got old and he started having strokes and things like that. So they came back. They came back. Was that? Yeah. Was that? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know what I? That's one thing I ask every day because we live in Laos. And Laos is very humid. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and California are where the Hmong, most of the Hmongs live. And um, it's very cold. Yeah, it's very cold over there in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. And I can never live there. It's very, I mean, a lot of Hmong people, they say it's very different from where they're from. Um, but a lot of them, they, they chose to just, uh, you know, live there for some reason. So I, I prefer to stay here in California, even with the extra taxes here and there. I prefer to pay for that, for the warm weather. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just can't stand the snow. Yeah, but um, and, and as of today, um, since the beginning of Reverend Jutsu and his wife's mission work in Laos, today there's more than 70 United Methodist Church congregations in Laos in the 11 years that they were there. There's 20 ordained Laotian Hmong clergies um, there in Laos. There's 40 licensed local pastors in Laos, and there's 59 lay preachers now in Laos from the work of what Reverend Jutsu and the uh, United Methodist Church has been doing. Here in California, we started our minist- ministry, the Hmong ministry in 1987 with three pastors. The first one was Pastor Peng Jer Yang in Fresno. Uh, today, the, the, his church is known as the Clovis Memorial um, Church. We also have Pastor Shine Vang, who started this ministry in, in 1987 here in Marysville Orville. And then we have Pastor Tony Yang Lee, who started in Merced. And so the today's current Hmong ministries and churches are the Orville First United Methodist Church, which I'm the pastor of, then Marysville First United Methodist Church, where Pastor Chakua is. Sacramento Trinity United Methodist Church is where Pastor Changjur Yang is at. Uh, then we have the First United Methodist Church of Merced, where there is no pastor. And then the Clovis UMC, where there is also no, pastor, no Hmong pastor. We have Pastor Janet there. There, um, but um, well, of course she doesn't speak Hmong. So uh, she, but what we've been able to do to help her church is to certify a lot of the Hmongs within her church to become certified lay speaker. And so those are the ones that she's, um, you know, using to preach the Hmong people. 
are the, a lot of the uh, people that we're, we, we, were, we were able to certify as lay speakers. And then we have the St. Paul's United Methodist Church of Orville, which is the newest Hmong plant here in California. It's been around for, it's only been around for about three to four years. And the majority of the people from this church came from the, from the Church of Christ. They came from the denomination of the Church of Christ. And when they, they were able, able to establish this church, Pastor Greg Vang from Minnesota, uh, from, yeah, from Minnesota came, and he's the one that's currently pastoring the um, St. Paul's United Methodist Church of Fresno. And so today there's other Hmong pastors today that are still serving here with, in our Cal Nevada conference. There's Pastor Yu Vang. He is Pastor Shine's younger brother. He's serving at the Outwater United Methodist Church. There is no Hmong ministry there. Uh, there's also Reverend Dr. Paul Joseph Comdi uh, Yang. Uh, he's the one that came here to, pass, to uh, officiate the wedding for food. Um, he's, he doesn't work at a church, but he works as a chaplain. Um, then there's Pastor Joseph Vang, who is Pastor Shine's son, the one that just recently uh, got ill. And so he's on leave right now, but he's still a licensed pastor with us. And then there's, of course, Pastor Shine, who uh, went over to Minnesota and pastor over there, but he's, he's came back since then. He came back in, in February, and right now he's, not, he's currently not assigned anywhere. And so some of the challenges that we face here in our Hmong, Hmong ministry is, um, you know, like Dr. Christian Vang, he sat down with me. He's a, he was the chair of the National Federation of Asian Ministries. And he sat down with me and he said, Chang, you know, why is it that in the CMA and in the Baptist, they're able to build multi-million dollar Hmong churches? Why are they able to do all these things? While here in the United Methodist Church, our Hmong ministry cannot even sustain itself. And so it's one of the questions that when I became the chair of the Hmong Caucus that they, that, that they presented to me, one of the challenges that we have to face. And some of the things that we see as new pastors coming in, if you, re, you recognize that three of the new pastors here in, the, in our conference are all from the CMA. And they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to get new ideas from the CMA because the CMA has been working with the Hmong ministry for so long. So we have three brand new pastors here in our conference that's all from the CMA. Pastor Greg, myself, and Pastor Chang Jury Yang, all from the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And so some of the things that we see is that there, there has been a lack of, lack of vision for growth. Lack of vision for growth. A lack of connection with the conference. A lack of connection with the conference where the lay leadership of the church doesn't really have a voice. And I can understand, I can understand where the old pastors are coming from too because uh, one of the things that they often tell me is that there are so, there's, 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 there's a big difference in culture. And so when you, go to the, when you go to the conference, there's a lot of things that's going on that's very different from what the Hmong community is used to, and they have just chosen not to connect the, Hmong, the, the lay leaders with the conference because of that. And because they're afraid, they're afraid that if you, you make that connection, then everybody's going to leave. And that is a possibility. That is a possibility because of the difference in the cultural values things of that sort. And so they're very afraid for that. So I can understand where they're coming from. Being that I'm young and a little bit naive, I prefer to speak up. <laughs> so I prefer to tell, tell the Hmong congregations that we got to get involved and we got to speak up. You know, you, you can't just isolate yourself and say, you know, we're, we're the minority. If we go over there, they have their own views and we're going to feel marginalized and things like that. You, you, we can't, we can't be like that. You know, we can't isolate ourselves like that. We have to connect. We have to connect and we have to um, speak up, and we have to make our voices known here in the United Methodist Church. So I'm, as the chair of the Hmong Caucus, I, I kind of take a different approach than some of the pastors in the past who just prefer that, you know what, there's so much 
there's such this big difference that we don't, we don't want to lose our members. We don't want to lose our Hmong members. We don't want to lose our Hmong ministry. So we prefer that we as pastors, we just connect with them, but we, we don't really want to uh, connect our lay leaders over there. Okay, so, that's, so those are some of the things that uh, I see differently from some of our older pastors. Of course, there's a lack of discipleship. A lot of times we evangelize for all the wrong reasons. We like to go around and tell people that come to, the, come to United Methodist Church because we have the Anglos and they'll pay for everything. I'll be honest with you. Okay, I'm, I'm honest with you. Some, sometimes the generosity that we have is not really helping the Hmong ministry because it gets them to think in a different way. And so, you know, they, so sometimes we evangelize for all the wrong reasons. We don't take that responsibility within the Hmong ministry. And we t- we kind of take advantage of, 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 of the generosity that we receive. And so the, these are some of the things that we see. We, we see a lack of accountability. And this is not only just for the Hmong, uh, Hmong pastors. This is for the entire United Methodist Church. We, we see so many pastors, including our Hmong ministry, that never shows up for anything. Don't show up for conference meetings. Don't show up for circuit meetings. Don't show up for caucus meetings. No one says anything about it. We just let it be. And so we see a lack of accountability. Um, and, you know, because of all these things, we see that the Hmong ministry has been losing members since the 90s. There's also a lot of clan family politics within the Hmong churches here in the United Methodist Church where my family belongs at this church, your family belongs at that church. We can't unite because my, my family likes to do things different, your family likes to do other things different. The, the, co- the, the conference came to me and they asked me that, about planting a new United Methodist Church, Hmong church here in California with a family. And I told them that's a bad idea. Okay, that's a bad, bad idea because we don't need any more family churches because that's just going to cause more division and more, more, um, more issues for us. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, when we do ministry, we never send a pastor to a church that his family, that, that, that the majority is his family. We never do that because, we see, because when, when that happens, then it becomes a family church and everybody is pushed out. And so uh, that's, that's one of the issues that we have in, in the, our United Methodist churches. That many of our churches are small, but they're all family churches. And so a lot of politics, you know, like Sacramento don't like Orville, Orville don't like, you know, Sacramento. You know, because the families, right, family issues. It becomes personal issues and things like that. So we don't want that. So that's something we don't want. Uh, of course, we talk about lack of self-sufficiency in, in the churches. You know, we also have a poor reputation within the Hmong community. The word, a lot of times they think we're Mormons. A lot, of Hmongs think, a lot of Hmong people think that we are Mormons. They, they don't know that we're Methodists. They have no idea what a Methodist is. A lot of them, they think that Methodists are not even Christians. Okay, because... Right. 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 Yeah, so, yeah, so I mean, we, we just have to develop a more uh, positive reputation within the Hmong communi- community. A lot of the politics that we have within the Hmong churches also cause us to have a poor reputation among the, the, the Hmong community, and so people don't want to join us because they're afraid of that, okay? And so some of the goals that we have for the future is to develop the Cal Nevada Hmong Caucus into an official organization. It's been around for 30 years working with the con- conference. It's never been officialized. And so that's one of the things that the conference is talking to me about is that, you know, the pastors of the past, they never put the effort into it. We want you to do it. So that's what, this is what we're going to try to do is make it into a, an official organization. We're going to try to unite the conference and the caucuses together, identify new leaders, train new leaders, new pastors in the, in the community, 
uh, ministry training, teaching them how to run the church. Uh, we're also going to advocate for Hmong pastors who have a shared vision of being t- connected together. We want Hmong pastors who are willing to come together to do ministry together. We don't want, these, we don't want pastors that don't want to show up for anything, okay? And so we want to get away from family churches. We want to enforce church responsibilities to the local Hmong ministries. And so um, we want them to actually take part of the ministry of the church. Okay, like for example, in our church, we're starting to get them to contribute into the general fund with their fundraisers and things like that. We're not only doing that in our church, but we're doing that in other monk churches throughout California too because we want to make sure that they understand that they're part of the church. We don't want them isolated from, from the rest of the church. Um, we want to empower our lay people to be voices at the conference level, like I spoke about. We want to reconnect the monks to the conferences. We want to reconnect all the monk caucuses. And we also want, the, the big thing for me, it's always the youth ministry. It's always the youth ministry. We, we want to have an effective youth ministry. I looked at our budget for our caucuses, our conference. We have zero for the youth ministry. We have $2,000 over here to pay for the pastors to travel around the world and to eat, to travel around California and to eat at restaurants. But here at the youth ministry, we have zero dollars. So I said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to move all that money over here for the pastors to our youth ministry. <laughs> and so I, I was able to convince, I was able to convince all of our other pastors to do that. So we voted to move all that money because I tell them, you, as the pastor, we have our, we, we have our salaries, we have our, uh, you know, our pers- professional expenses and stuff like that that we use already. We don't need, we don't need another budget over here for us. We can take that and put it into the youth ministry. Because in the past, a lot of people who, who has Try to, be, try to support the youth ministry, they've had to come up with money out of their own pocket. And so when, when you do that for one, two years, you run out of money. You can't continue doing that. And so I said, we're not going do, to do that any, any longer, but we're going to take this money that you guys are saving for the pastors, and we're moving it over here to the youth. And so I'll show a video for you guys next week about the youth ministry and, and what we've been able to accomplish. Let us pray together. Father, thank you so much, Father. Thank you so much for being with all of us. We ask that you continue to open up our hearts to one another, that we start to, that we'll be able to recognize the contributions that we have given to each other. And also at the same time, that we'll be able to learn more and more about each other. So in that way, Father, we can support each other for the sake of your kingdom. And so we give everything to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.